Hello, and welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Peter Bell, and this is Catechism Thursday, episode number 13. And again, if you guys have not yet listened to Monday's episode with Dr. Guy Waters, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, he spoke on covenant theology, how we find it in the scripture, and how it structures the way both we read scripture and understand what Christ has done for us uh, and how it structures our understanding of the Trinity as well. So if you guys haven't listened to that, pause this right here, go to Monday's episode, listen to that, and then come right back. So again, we have Catechism Thursday number 13. We are going through question and answers 33 and 34. 33 is a little longer than 34, so Bear with me, and then 34 will close us out on a slightly shorter note. So question 33. Why is he called God's only begotten son, since we also are children of God? Answer. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. And here's Osinus' exposition of the divinity of Christ, where he grounds this question and answer in his exposition in the divinity of Jesus Christ. So first, whether Christ, beside his soul and body, is and has been a subsistent or person. So he talks about his personhood first, before his divinity. The passages of scripture which expressly teach and distinguish two natures in Christ, and which affirm of the word that he was made man, was manifested in the flesh, assumed our nature, proclaimed inasmuch as the word assumed human nature. He must of necessity be different from it, and must have had an existence before that which he took upon him, and into which he has not changed, but has a subsistence or hypostasis, which just means same, uh, same part of that divinity different and distinct from the flesh which he assumed. The declarations of scripture in which Christ is called the proper son of God, because he is not adopted, but begotten from the substance of the Father, show us Christ is, therefore, the proper son of God, and there is necessarily another nature in him besides that which he assumed, according to which he is the proper son of God. Other declarations of scripture in which Christ is called the only begotten Son of God, say there is in Christ another nature, according to which he is the only begotten Son of the Father, in relation to which he has no brethren. The testimonies of Scripture, in which the title of God is ascribed to Christ as to his divine nature, even before he was made flesh, proclaim the Son was before he was sent into the world. And he says that in John 8, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Those passages of scripture, which speak of the word, say he is called the word and the son of God, is a person which has existed before Jesus was born, and now dwells personally in the human nature which he assumed. The declarations of holy writ, which testify of Christ, that he is the wisdom of God, show that wisdom is the Son of God. And you want to think a lot about Proverbs right there too. The testimonies of Scripture, 
concerning the office of the mediator, which is to collect and to preserve the whole church by his merit and efficacy, display that neither Adam nor any of the faithful of old knew God except through the Son. Subsequently, or consequently, the Son must have then existed. This is a lot of Hebrews here too. Hebrews, the, the book of the New Testament. The testimonies in relation to the angel who appeared to the fathers under the Old Testament as the messenger of God, say the Son was a person subsisting before he took upon him our nature. Lastly, those places in Scripture in which Christ is expressly called the true God by name and properties prove Christ is, without doubt, called God. His second piece of exposition, he asks, whether he is a person distinct from the Father and the Holy Ghost. He answers, the Word is the Son of the Father and not the Father himself. The scriptures teach that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. There are expressed testimonies of scripture which affirm that the Father is one, the Son is one, and the Holy Ghost is another. There are distinct attributes ascribed to the each and different persons of the Godhead. Then he asks, third question, whether he be equal with the Father and the Holy Ghost. So it's established he's different in his person, but is he equal? Yes, by explicit testimonies from the scriptures. He is the true, proper, and natural Son of God, begotten from the essence of the Father. The scriptures attribute all the essential properties of deity to the Son, not less than to the Father, as that he is eternal. The scriptures, in like manner, attribute all divine works equally to the Father and the Son. In the scriptures, equal and common honor and worship are also attributed to the Father and the Son, which equality follows from equality of essence and operation. So because he shares in this essence, he must be equal to the Father and the Holy Ghost. Then he asks, last question, whether he be consubstantial, that is, one of one and the same substance with both. And Rosina says yes, because God, because the Son is called Jehovah, which is the Old Testament word for God, who is only one essence. Because he is called the true God, who is but one, and it is said, this is the true God and eternal life. From John 5.20. Because there is one and the same Spirit of the Father and the Son, proceeding from and proper unto, both through whom the Father and the Son work. And because Christ is the only begotten and proper Son of the Father, having his essence communicated to him the same and entire, inasmuch as the Godhead can neither be multiplied or divided. So he has the same divine essence, he shares in the same divine essence. And he's a distinct person. This is who Christ is. There are therefore just as many principal propositions to be demonstrated against different heretics. First, that Christ, born of the Virgin, besides his soul and body, is a person. A true, flesh-living person. Both in his ministry and now at the right hand of the Father. Second, that he is a person distinct from the Father and the Holy Ghost. 
third, that he is equal to both. So there's distinction, but equality. And fourth, that he is of one and the same essence, or consubstantial. We move on to question 34, a little bit shorter. Why do you call him our Lord? He answers, because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. And here's Osinus's exposition. He asks two questions, two things are here to be considered. First, in what sense Christ is called Lord? And he answers, because he has dominion over us and over all things, and because all things are subject to him, and we are bound to serve him in body and soul, that he may be glorified by us. And for both natures of Christ will and secure our redemption. The human nature paid the price of our redemption by dying for us, and the divine gives and offers to the Father this price, and applies it unto us by the Spirit. Christ is, therefore, our Lord not only in respect to his divine nature, which he has created us, but also in respect to his humanity. For even in as far as he is man, the person of Christ is Lord over all angels and men. And lastly, second question, for what causes and in how many ways is he our Lord? And he answers, by rights of creation, sustenance and government in its general character, as well as that which he is in common with the Father and Holy Ghost. By the right of redemption peculiar to himself, because he alone is the mediator who has redeemed us by his blood from sin and death, delivered us from the power of the devil, and set us apart for himself. By reason of our preservation of Christ is our Lord, because he defends us even to the end and keeps us unto eternal life, not only by preserving our bodies from injuries, but our souls also from sin. In respect to ordination or appointment, because the Father ordained the Word, or this person Christ, to this, that He might through Him accomplish all things in heaven and on earth. And so lastly, to conclude, Ursinus says, We believe our Lord. When we say we believe our Lord, we mean, first, that the Son of God is the creator of all things. That he is in a peculiar manner constituted the Lord, the defender and preserver of the church. Because he has redeemed it with his blood. And that the Son of God is also my Lord. And I am one of his subjects. That I am redeemed by his blood and continually preserved by him so that I am bound to be grateful to him. Thanks for listening to this week's Catechism Thursday, episode number 13 on question answers 33 to 34 in the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you guys can tune in next week. We have Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, talking about the Westminster Standards. He is the authority when it comes to the text 
and the theology behind the Westminster Standards. You will not want to miss this. It is incredibly illuminating, Christ-honoring, and you guys will learn a whole lot behind the doctrinal standards behind the Reformed Church. So tune in next week, and we'll see you then. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed theological truth. Please subscribe to us on your podcast catcher. Review us. Give us five stars. Help others find this podcast through your review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to follow us there, keep up with our updates and who we're interviewing next and a couple quotes that you guys might find really enriching. We hope to see you guys next week.